Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturday. Today is Saturday, April 24th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we're going to present the um, final segment of our short series, The Roichlin Affair Revisited. And this is the program that we hope will provide some of the glue which we had hoped for to stick the Jews and the secret societies to the protocols of Satan. Or perhaps I should say to stick the protocols of the learned elders of Zion to the Jews and the secret societies. This is now the third and final segment of our presentation. From Chapter 7 of The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit and Its Impact on World History by E. Michael Jones, which is titled Roichlin versus Pfefferkorn. Here we see that from one of the first episodes of the Reformation, the future of academia in Europe is stuck in a dichotomy which we may describe as the self-hating Jew versus the wannabe Jew. This is because Pfefferkorn, a conversal Jew, had made himself an advocate for the Dominican monks who wanted to rid Germany and the Empire of the wicked writings of the Jews found in the Talmud, the Kabbalah, and other medieval books. But Reuschlin, the German Christian, became fascinated with the Kabbalah and other writings of the Jews to the point of wanting to install Jews into the universities as teachers of Hebrew and theology, while he had admittedly never even read the Talmud. To the advantage of all Jews, the argument was quickly characterized anew as being between the humanists and the scholastics, even though the primary issue remained centered on the Jewish literature. The scholastics, represented by the Dominican monks, wanted to eradicate the Jewish books because they saw them as an impediment to their goal of bringing the Jews as converts into the Catholic Orthodoxy, naively imagining that the books themselves were the cause of historically anti-Christian Jewish behavior. While the scholastics were defenders of traditional Catholicism against the Jews, they were also traditional universalist Catholics who would readily accept presumed converts from Judaism. The humanists rallied to the cause of the Judaizing Reuschlin, the wannabe Jew, because they saw an opportunity to put an end to Roman Catholic obscurantism, as they called it, which limited the studies of the universities to those books approved by the Roman Catholic theologians. The material which E. Michael Jones has thus far presented has indeed added to our understanding of this affair as we had followed the narrative of it earlier in our series on Martin Luther from the work of German historian Johann Janssen, 
Here we shall present the last part of Jones's chapter and reserve our summary remarks for a conclusion. Where we had left off, we were disappointed that Jones, in our opinion, had wrongly endeavored to characterize the humanists as racists for some of their criticisms of Pfefferkorn. We could only wish that they were racists. Yet we hope to have shown that the remarks Jones used in order to illustrate his accusation were not attacking Pfefferkorn's Jewishness on the basis of his race, but rather because they questioned the sincerity of his conversion. Jones, a traditional Roman Catholic who evidently believes in the Roman Catholic claims in relation to the efficacy of their baptism, and I call it their baptism sacrament because it's not a Christian sacrament at all, in the efficacy of their baptism sacrament, because Jones believes in that, he is apparently biased by his own profession of faith. When we concluded the last segment of this presentation, we saw the outcome of Reuchlin's request of the Pope's Jewish physician, Bonnet de Lattes, to influence, to use his influence in order to help Reuchlin's case against the Dominicans. Jones noted that de Lattes must have been especially effective because Reuchlin's case was transferred from the Dominican jurisdiction at Mainz to the Bishop of Spire, who judged against Hoogstraten and in favor of Reuchlin. All charges against Reuchlin were dismissed, and Hoogstraten was found guilty of slander and ordered to pay a fine. Pfefferkorn responded, rather irately, by writing another booklet, Reuchlin responded in turn with a booklet of his own, as Jones described, and he said, in response to Sturm Glock, which was Pfefferkorn's booklet, Reuchlin published a self-serving anthology of letters of support he had received entitled Letters of Famous Men, in which he predicted that when the scholastic theologians were done with him, they would gag all poets, one after another. Other humanists embraced Reuchlin's interpretation and began a letter-writing campaign to mobilize public opinion against the Dominican theologians. That is where we left off, and now we shall commence from page 246 of Jones's book. If the humanists had left it at that, Reuchlin would have gone down in history as one more pompous, self-serving academic. But the humanists felt the cause too important to be left in the hands of an academic plotter. In 1515, Reuchlin's supporters brought out one of the most successful satires in the history of European letters, the Letters of Obscure Men, 
a 16th century version of the screw tape letters. The screw type le- the screw tape letters were a satirical satirical Christian apologetic novel by C.S. Lewis, which was also written as a collection of letters. And no, I haven't read them. The Letters of Obscure Men, Joan says, was written in the Pigeon Latin, which the humanists love to ascribe to their scholastic opponents. Erasmus of Rotterdam, we are told, laughed so hard while reading the Letters of Obscure Men that an abscess of the throat that had plagued him burst, and he was cured of his ailment. The letters of obscure men did for Reuchlin what the pompous plotter could not do for himself. The letters made him the victor in the first major publicity campaign since the invention of the printing press. The letters of obscure men also marked the beginning of the transition from the humanist scholastic controversy to the Reformation. And we must remark at length, the letters of obscure men were written by the pagan humanists, Crotus Rubianus, who became the... who, who was put in charge of the University of Erfurt as rector, and Ulrich von Hutten, we disagree with Jones's conclusion here, however, concerning the Reformation. That did not happen until Reuchlin's ultimate failure, when the humanists dropped him for a new hero, Martin Luther. Jones is correct, however, insofar as the objectives of the humanists did not change simply because they switched buses at the station, getting off of Reuchlin and onto Luther. However, Luther had the addition of many valid theological arguments about which, without which the Reformation would not have had the wheels to run on. We have a um, PDF copy of a reproduction and translation of the Letters of Obscure Man, which we will make available along with this presentation. It was published in a limited edition of 500 copies in 1909. Our copy, of course, comes from archive.org, which has just about everything. The translation and introduction are by Francis Griffin Stokes. In the introduction, concerning the charge of blasphemy aimed at the authors of the Letters of Obscure Men, he says in part, No better instance of this line of criticism could perhaps be found than that contained in the following extract from Johann Janssen's learned and elaborate history of the German people, where he says, the similes in the letters, says this historian, are of the most offensive description. Our Lord Jesus Christ is compared to Cadmus, because Christ has two nativities, one before all time and another in his human form. He is compared to the twice-born Bacchus. Semele, who brought up Bacchus, signifies the Virgin Mary. However, Francis Griffin goes on to describe the fact that the authors of the Letters of Obscure Men 
were merely satirizing a practice in which the monks were said to be engaging the search for similarities of scripture within the Greek classics. We, however, would think the search to be harmless and even informative if done properly. While the authors of the Letters of Obscure Men were indeed impious pagans seeking to offend traditional Christian sensibilities. And this would branch us off into another topic, but we won't go into it except to say that that these clowns that produce things like zeitgeist and, and that say that all of these um, things in the Bible come from earlier traditions, well, first, they're all wrong. I can guarantee they're all wrong because they take everything out of its historical context. However, the search for biblical analogies and symbolism in the classics, as we see here, dates to the 15th century. It's nothing new. These people that find parallels between Babylonian epics or or Greek poets and, and biblical stories, this search is nothing new. It's nothing new at all. But it's also not what the scoffers say it is when those parallels are found. And we will leave it at that and returning to Jones. Some claim the Jewish question was not central to the letters of obscure men and that its main purpose was to lampoon scholastic dialectics as an outmoded relic of the Dark Ages. But the book's opening shot was directed at the Church's directives against Jews. In particular, the Fourth Lateran Council measures to segregate Jews from Christians. By the love of God, Rubianus wrote under the name of Ortwin Gratius in this satire, Crotus Rubianus and Ulrich Hutton, who wrote the Letters of Obscure Men, are using the names of certain of the Dominican monks by which to lampoon them, stuffing the words into the mouths of their adversaries. Rubianus wrote under the name of Ortwin Gratius, the Cologne Dominican who was one of Pfefferkorn's most stalwart defenders. What are you doing? Those fellows are Jews, and you have taken off your cap to them. Pseudo Gratius, meaning Rubianus writing as Gratius, grapples with whether he sinned by greeting Jews as if they were Christians. For if I had known that they were Jews and had nevertheless taken off my cap, then I would deserve to be burned at the stake for heresy. But heaven knows, I had no idea from anything they said or did that they were Jews. I thought they were doctors. To calm his conscience, Gratius confesses. But when I went to confession in the Dominican monastery, the confessor told me that the sin was mortal, because we must always be on guard. And he told me he could not have absolved me if he did not have an Episcopal license for it was the case for the bishop. Gradius is finally absolved when he finds a confessor with an Episcopal license. Of course, we have not 
yet read the letters of obscure men to the point that we can identify the letter which Jones describes here. But the very first of the letters, we did read that much. Only lampoons the scholastics for their love of bestowing particular Latin titles on those with certain academic achievements. And here we see that the writers of the Letters of Obscure Men are really lampooning the formality of the church which requires paper licenses issued by men in order to perform certain sacramental deeds. However, here the humanists seem not to be quarreling with the Dominicans alone, but also with the quandary for Christians caused by the admonishment of the, of the Apostle John in his second epistle, where he also warns Christians not even to greet those who do not bear the doctrines of Christ. This is a quandary for Christians because Jews are allowed to dwell among and, and conduct business among Christians. So you can't always tell that they are Jews. Jews should have been ostracized from society. And the humans were, humanists were actually acting as their apologists. Jones continues... Pseudo Gradius then moves on to the weightier theological issue of whether, when a Jew becomes a Christian, his foreskin, the part of his member that is cut off at birth, according to the Jewish law, grows back. He can't ask his fellow Dominicans because they themselves are sometimes defective in that part. Well, maybe if they were really conversos or something. And so Gradius resolves to establish the truth of this matter once and for all by asking Herr Pfefferkorn's wife. This is part of the slander that Pfefferkorn's wife was sleeping with the Dominican monks, which Jones had repeated from the mouths of the historians earlier on in this chapter. Gradius, referring to the real Ortwin Gradius here, and not to the character in the epistles. Gradius made the mistake of responding to this fraternity house humor with a book of his own, Lamentations of Obscure Men. But it had few readers and little impact other than to ensure that the book he attacked would remain in print for the next four centuries, and we would conjecture that it may have remained in print regardless. A second edition of the Letters of Obscure Men appeared in 1516 with an appendix of seven new letters. The primary author of the additional material was Ulrich von Hutten, a talented poet and satirist. Emperor Maximilian crowned him Poet Laureate in 1517. An early supporter of Luther and in part Eight of our series on Martin Luther, we had established from Johann Janssen that the two men did not have 
a direct relationship until 1520. Nevertheless, Jones claims here that, an early supporter of Luther, he was prepared to use violence to assure the success of the Reformation. That's true, but it's not true until after Hutton has contact with Luther, until after 1520. That's important to note in the context here. Hutton persuaded the equally volatile Franz von Sickingen to take part in the Pfaffenkrieg, the war against the priests, where the latter died in the battle. Hutton then fled to the area around Basel and Zurich, where he died of syphilis in 1523, just as the peasant revolt was getting underway. Gretz refers to Ulrich von Hutton in spite of his syphilis as the most energetic and virile character of the time, because he was most eager to bring about the downfall of ecclesiastic domination in Germany. And indeed, Gretz should have loved Ulrich von Hutten, as Hutten was an impious pagan humanist and an enabler of the Jews in Germany. But Jones is confused here. There were two Pfaffenkriegs, or wars against the priest, and they both belonged to the 15th century. One of them was a hundred years before this, the other was 50 years before this. So Jones is either confused or perhaps he's trying to strengthen his arguments that Hutton had a strong dislike, Hutton and Sickingen, for the clergy they did have a strong dislike for the clergy, but they did not fight in a war against the priests. Rather, Sickingen died after being wounded in the Knights' Revolt of 1522, which was sometimes called the Poor Barons' Rebellion. The brief and unsuccessful revolt precipitated the much larger German Peasants' War of 1524. Continuing with Jones, Gret says the humanists had become virtually a society united behind the cause of Reuschland in Western Europe, which silently worked for one another and Reuschland. It was a struggle of the dark Middle Ages with the dawn of the better time, whose goal was to better time for the Jews anyway, and the dark Middle Ages were only dark for the Jews. They were not dark ages. That is Jewish propaganda. Whose goal was to destroy the Dominicans, priests, and bigots, and establish the kingdom of intellect and free thought to deliver Germany from the nightmare of ecclesiastical superstition and barbarism, raise it from its abjectness and make it the arbiter of Europe. And of course, Gretz is speaking wholly from the viewpoint of a devil. With this goal in mind, the Reuschland faction involuntarily became friends of the Jews and sought grounds on which to defend them. Prominent Jews, likewise, were working in Rome for Reuschland, but like the German Jews, they had the good sense to keep in the background so as not to imperil the cause by stamping it as Jewish. And Gretz is both right and wrong. 
The cause was not necessarily Jewish, but it benefited the Jews in every way. Naturally, Gretz would have no care for the legitimate complaints of Luther and the German theologians who joined him, nor would he have care for the opposition, I'm sorry, for the oppression of the German people by the Roman Catholic Church and the luxuriant wealth of the priestly class which was obtained at the expense of the people. Gretz wouldn't care about that because he's a Jew. It wasn't his money being taken off in indulgences. In fact, the Jews were probably benefiting from that. If the cause were merely Jewish, it would have failed. But because there was a greater cause, the Jews took advantage of it and benefited greatly as a result. Gretz gives the Jews too much credit. And Jones goes along because being a traditional Catholic, he wants to give the Jews just as much credit. It seems evident in the writings of Martin Luther that at first he was very amenable to the Jews because he held the hope that outside of the Roman Catholic Church, they could ultimately be converted to Christianity. When they did not convert, he felt betrayed, and from there he developed the new thesis that the Jews were indeed devils and treacherous liars. But the humanists did not, as Gret states, become friends of the Jews involuntarily. Rather, they were more than eager to support Reuschland, Luther, or any other cause whereby they could undermine Roman Catholic authority because they also had their own agenda, a pagan agenda. That agenda was made clear from their own writings. In the History of Germany, presented by Johann Janssen, continuing with Jones. In July 1516, the majority of the commissioners confirmed the Spire judgment acquitting Reuschland. Formally, however, the decision was in the Pope's hands. In a diplomatic move, the, he suspended proceedings, depriving Reuschland of a clear victory, but also frustrating Hoogstraden who remained in Rome for another year before returning to Cologne in the spring of 1517. The situation was generally interpreted as a moral victory for Reuschland, but by the time Hoogstraten returned from Rome, the Germanies, as he calls the German states, had other things to think about. Luther had posted his 97, and sometimes they are accounted as, 97. Luther had posted his 97 theses in Wittenberg, and within seven years the empire's southern German-speaking lands would witness a revolution so modern in form that the communists of the 20th century claimed it as their own, and that's certainly not the reason why they did so. Gretz thinks the Catholic Church was fatally undermined by the ridicule of the letters of obscure men. The Church could not defend itself because the whole tyranny of the hierarchy and the Church had been laid bare. 
For were not the Dominicans, with their insolent ignorance and shameless voice, vices, the product and natural effect of the Catholic order and institution? So the satire worked like a corroding acid, entirely destroying the already rotting body of the Catholic Church. The theological basis for Martin Luther's Reformation is being ignored here. Hutton's constant promotion of Luther's work to the German priests informs, in very persuasive forms, that were often preached to the people probably had more effect than the letters of obscure men on the typical German. Furthermore, Luther did not approve of the Peasants' War of 1524 to 1526, and he even opposed it on theological grounds, although he supported the actual grievances of the peasants themselves. Ultimately, over a third of the estimated 300,000 peasants who took part in the war were slain. The Peasants' War seems to have started as a series of separate revolts which were later united in their cause. The chief unifier in the war seems to have been a Thomas Munzer, a messianic mystic who had announced that the return of Christ was near, and he traveled from province to province promoting his views and offering his leadership to the Protestants. He seems to have believed that after the nobility and the priests were destroyed, that Christ would return. Because Munzer was a champion of the peasants, three centuries later, and this is what Jones is really referring to, three centuries later, the Jewish Marxists would adopt him as one of their own, but he was nothing of the sort. Returning to Jones... Gretz agrees with Erasmus that the legitimacy of the church was also undermined by the rehabilitation of the Talmud. Gretz, according to Gretz, the discussion aroused by the Talmud created an intellectual medium favorable to the germination and growth of Luther's reform movement. Erasmus supported the study of languages, including Hebrew, as a salutary antidote to scholastic nitpicking, but he feared, nonetheless, that enthusiasm for language studies would create neo-pagan and Judaizing movements within the church. Erasmus is being painted here in the light of a pious Roman Catholic clergyman. However, we have already seen that, instead, he was a humanist who himself had pagan leanings, and who had raised up a generation of pagan humanists within the clergy of the church. Erasmus had lauded the impiety of Hutton and Rubianus as genius. However, Erasmus often disagreed with Luther, did not join the Reformation, and instead sought to reform the Catholic Church from within. Continuing with Jones... Gretz best explains Reuchlin's ambivalent attitude toward the Jews and things Jewish when he says that Reuchlin spared the Talmud because of his foolish fondness for the secret doctrine. It contained. Gretz is referring specifically 
to Reuschlin's love for the secret doctrine of the Kabbalah, which he derived from the most confused source of information, what Gretz refers to as the foolish writings of the Kabbalist Joseph Jicatilla of Castile, or Yicatilla, which the convert Paul Recchio had lately translated into Latin. It might have been Hicatilla, excuse me. Out of love for this secret doctrine, supposed to offer the key to the deepest knowledge of philosophy and Christianity, Reuschlin had wished to spare the Talmud, because in his opinion it contained mystical elements. And Jones comments, Gretz can't quite bring himself to say it, but Reuschlin, the forerunner of the Enlightenment, spared the Jewish books because he wanted to learn magic from them. Gretz, who usually scorns the mumbo-jumbo of the Kabbalah, defends it in the case of Reuschlin because of the damage that Reuschlin and his fondness for secret doctrine did to the church. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> we have seen how flimsy the charges were of anti-Semitism which both Gretz and Jones have leveled towards Reuschlin. We saw that towards the end of segment two of our presentations and we'll leave it at that. Jones now returns to Perkheimer. Willie Ball Perkheimer, who spent time among the Reformed Party before returning to the faith, identified himself as a friend of both Erasmus and Reuschlin. In 1517, he wrote a letter defending Reuschlin against the charge of bribery. They, Perkheimer writes, referring to Reuschlin's detractors, are saying that he extorted gold from the Jews and was not ashamed to write many perverted things to do them a favor. Perkheimer defends Reuschlin in a series of rhetorical questions. And Jones quotes, What would have impelled such a Christian man to commit so great a crime, deigning to prefer the friendship of the Jews to faith and truth, love for the Jews? Then he would indeed deserve to be hated. What could have motivated him then to prefer the friendship of the Jews to the truth? They rightly ask what advantage, what wealth might have served as inducements that he should so be so blindly, so blinded by cupidity. After all, he is a man of advanced years, who has already enjoyed positions of honor, who was born from Christian parents. Why then would he venture on such a shameful deed? Perkheimer dismisses the possibility of a bribe because the Jews in their innate avarice would not part with a great deal of money, and little would do him no good. Perkheimer might have changed his argument had he known that Jonathan Levi Zeon was willing to spend 100 gulden in addition to an unspecified down payment to bribe the Margrave of Baden, which we had seen when we first started this series of presentations in part one. Innate avarice and bribery are not mutually exclusive. Jonathan Levi Zeon mentioned Reuschlin's appointment to the commission 
in the same letter in which he brags about bribing the Margrave of Baden. But that is as far as the documentation takes us. Even if he took money from the Jews, the real reason for Reuschland's defense of Jewish books was not money, but gnosis, meaning knowledge, the Greek word for knowledge. Reuschland wanted to become a magus, and the only way to that end was through the Kabbalah, and of course magus is the singular of the word magi seen in the Bible. Reuschland was a Judaizer, but he was certainly not a philo-Semite, which Gretz brings out in spite of his praise for Reuschland. Reuschland, according to Gretz, looked on the Jewish people as utterly barbarous, devoid of all artistic taste, superstitious, mean, and depraved. He solemnly declared that he was far from favoring the Jews. Like his patron, Jerome, he testified to his thoroughgoing hatred of them. Reuschland, no less than Pfefferkorn, charged the Jews with blasphemy against Jesus, Mary, the apostles, and Christians in general. But a time came when he regretted the indiscreet lucubrations of his youth, for his heart did not share the prejudices of his head. And we do not know what material of Reuschland's Gretz gets that from. We have already seen in part one of this presentation that Gretz could indeed be very biased when it fit his opinion and that he had eagerly accepted and repeated unfounded slanders in relation to Pfefferkorn. So he would like to see the actual evidence before accepting that Reuschland was a racial anti-Semite, as Jones and Gretz attempt to portray him. So Jones continues in this endeavor, and he says, The source of Reuschland's ambivalence was his infatuation with the Kabbalah. Reuschland, according to Geiger, the other Jewish historian and near contemporary of Gretz, Reuschland, according to Geiger, was drawn willy-nilly into a relationship with the Jewish people because of the time he had spent studying the Hebrew language. Reuschland was soon beset on all sides with the accusation that the Jewish scriptures had taken root in his heart and turned him into a Judaizer. Geiger feels the charge unfounded because of Reuschland's antipathy to the Jews. But Reuschland also respected the Jews because they had preserved the Bible. The fact that his opponent was a baptized Jew only confirmed Reuschland in his racial animus against Pfefferkorn's heritage. He wasn't unprejudiced enough to attribute the errors of his enemy to one man. He had to ascribe them to the entire race from whence he came will reserve remarks on the Jewish preservation of the Bible. We simply didn't need the Jews to preserve the Bible. We have already argued in part two of this presentation from the citations from Reuschland himself that Jones had provided to us that Reuschland's remarks may easily have been in reference to the sincerity of Pfefferkorn's conversion rather than to his race, and that Jones did not even undertake such a consideration. 
He continues, Geiger's confusion is easily resolved. Reuschland was both a Judaizer and an anti-Semite. Rummel feels Reuschland reshaped the conflict into the humanist versus scholastic debate as a kind of plea bargaining because he recognized, with the Dominican Inquisitor at his heels and recent Spanish history fresh in his mind, that Judaizing was a charge that needed to be taken seriously and quashed quickly by shifting the debate. While it is true that Reuschland may have helped shape the debate or reshape the debate in this manner, we had also seen that early on in the Reuschland controversy, Erasmus had already described such a struggle. In response to Pfefferkorn's having joined a dispute on the part of the Dominicans, Jones had said early in his chapter that the Jews did not sit idle. Humanistic studies of the sort promoted by Erasmus of Rotterdam had suggested that a new day of enlightened tolerance was about to dawn after the long night of scholastic obscurantism, and so the Jews were emboldened to act. This indicates that the struggle already existed, but the dispute over the Talmud was brought into it by the humanists themselves when they voluntarily enlisted to Reuschland's cause. And Jones misses that. Reuschland had reason to be fearful because, and now Jones is quoting Geiger, the researches that had made him a paragon, a model of excellence, in the eyes of the humanists, had also made him vulnerable to the charges of Judaism. His rudiments of Hebrew, a combination of grammar and lexicon, contained criticism of the traditional Vulgate text, which was bound to raise the hackles of scholastic theologians. He had noticed discrepancies between the Hebrew text and the Vulgate translation. And let me just interject that this is only based on the presumption that the Vulgate came from a Hebrew manuscript similar to the Masoretic text. And people with Judaic sympathies, let me say that, had made the same accusations against the Septuagint until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the fact that many of the Hebrew manuscripts are somewhat different from the Masoretic text, and that some of the so-called mistranslations are not mistranslations at all. The text that Jerome translated the Vulgate from was not necessarily the same Hebrew as the text of the Masoretes a thousand years later. And this criticism is presuming that. He had noticed discrepancies between the Hebrew text and the Vulgate translation, declaring that the translation was inferior, the translator dreaming or blathering. In many cases, he suggested improvements that were not merely idiomatic, but changed the meaning. By engaging in scriptural studies, Reuschland was therefore entering dangerous territory.
that's the end of Geiger's quote. Or Jones's quote of Geiger. I'm sorry. Jones continues. Part of Geiger's confusion stems from his refusal to look squarely at Reuschland's rehabilitation of magic. Geiger, like Gretz, was a German Jew and devotee of the Enlightenment. Both men wanted to portray Reuschland as a forerunner of the Enlightenment rather than what he was, namely an enthusiastic supporter of Jewish magic. When Geiger said Reuschland knew nothing about magic, he meant to say that he himself apparently wanted Reuschland to know nothing about it because it ruined his portrayal of Reuschland as the disinterested Enlightenment scholar. Reuschland's ideas, Zika says, can only be adequately understood as part of the occult tradition of the Renaissance. This system promised new sources of knowledge and power, not through reason, but rather through magic, astrology, hermetic and Gnostic thought, Kabbalah, and alchemy. And here Jones had quoted Charles Zika, the current cultural historian of late medieval and early modern Europe at the University of Melbourne. The book cited is Jones's own translation of the German language, which is titled, the German language book, which is titled in English, Reuschlin and the Occult Tradition of the Renaissance. Geiger claims Pico was interested in the writings of Plato. But what really fascinated Pico were the later Neoplatonic texts. And what Neoplatonism and Kabbalah had in common was Gnosticism and magic. There was no Greek-Hebrew dichotomy. Pico was as avid to learn from the Hebrews as Reuschland really from the Jews, not from Hebrews at all. He was not afraid to avail himself of Jewish teachers like Elia del Medigo, also known as Elia Cretensis, Jehuda or Leo Abarbanel, and Jochenin Elman, who sought him, who taught him Hebrew and Kabbalah. Pico claimed he could derive from the Kabbalah proof for Christian writings like the incarnation of the Word, the arrival of the Messiah, and original sin, which claims we have already refuted here in part. But his main interest was magic. Pico could start by studying the Chaldean and Pythagorean writers, but in the cases of Pythagoras and Moses, the written text wasn't sufficient to get to the meat of the magic tradition, one needed the oral tradition through the Kabbalah and the Hebrew language. Pico claimed he used Kabbalah as an apologetic tool. No science gives us more certainty about the divinity of Christ than Kabbalah and magic. But this claim was most likely intended to placate the still dangerous and ever wary Inquisition, which was chaired by 
the Dominican monks. Reuschlin put the lessons he learned from Pico to good use in dealing with the Cologne Dominicans, assuring his critics that by magic he meant the knowledge of the properties of the heavenly bodies. The magic Reuschlin proposed was not the forbidden art found repugnant in others. It was, as Pico had indicated, a tool for Christian apologetics. Kabbalah provides the weapon of choice against the Jews, who of course in their own way honor the Kabbalah, but without, this is Pico's claim, but without having real insight into it. And I would say nobody could have insight into that book of goo. All of this is contrived, as the Kabbalah is antithetical to Christianity, and it is actually the product of Jews of the 12th century. What is more important to note, however, is how naively these men undertook this position in reference to it. The later secret societies recruited generations of Germans and Englishmen and Americans and wherever else they went, Franks and Italians, with the same unqualified claims. Jewish success was never based on magic, but on usury, dishonesty, and treachery of every sort. Returning to Jones. Pico convinced Reuschland of the congruence between Pythagoras and the Kabbalah. What was the goal of each school? Nothing less than raising the human spirit to the level of God. This is actually why the Kabbalah is impious. To promote in him complete happiness. The Kabbalist adept can enjoy the happiness of the blessed in this life. Unlike Zalivki, Zalivsky, I'm sorry, and the Hussites, who sought heaven on earth with the sword, Reuschlin sought it through esoteric knowledge or practical Kabbalah, in other words, magic. Whatever the means, the end was the same. The attraction which Kabbalistic Judaizing exerted over Reuschlin was the desire for heaven on earth, the best defense being a good offense. Reuschlin published a book affirming his love of the Kabbalah in 1517 at the height of his controversy with Pfefferkorn and the Dominicans. Reuschlin's Art of the Kabbalah was dedicated, his book, De Arte Kabbalistica, was dedicated to Pope Leo X, the Pope that was really Giovanni de Medici. Reuschlin tried to establish the intellectual bona fides, or good faith, of Kabbalistic studies by associating them with Lorenzo de' Medici, the father of Leo X and patron of Ficino and Pico. Your father, Reuschlin wrote in his dedication, sowed the seeds of universal ancient philosophy, which are now growing to maturity under your reign. Reuschlin planned to build on the work of Lorenzo, Ficino, and Pico to exhibit to the Germans a reborn Pythagoras dedicated to your name, meaning to Leo X. However, he can only begin this monumental task by making use of Kabbalah. For the Pythagorean, or Pythagorean, I'm sorry, philosophy has its origin in it, and that's a 
an absurd claim. And with the memory of the roots being lost, it entered the books of the Kabbalists, again via greater Greece. I have therefore written of the symbolic philosophy of the art of Kabbalah to make Pythagorean teaching better known to scholars. But in all this I myself make no assertions. I merely recount the opinions of a third party. They are non-Christians. The Jew, Simon, an experienced Kabbalist, who is on his way to Frankfurt, meets at an inn on the way a Pythagorean by the name of Philolaus the Younger and a Muslim by the name of Maranus. As we had explained earlier in a series of presentations, the Neoplatonist philosophers of the 3rd through the 6th centuries A.D. bore diverse teachings only loosely based on the philosophy of Plato, and they cannot at all be traced to Pythagoras. While we cannot qualify how much of the presumed gnosis of the Kabbalah was taken from earlier pagan philosophies, elements of Neoplatonism were evidently adopted both by Jews and Muslims, as well as later medieval Christians. It's anything but Hebrew. Continuing with Jones... In his Teutsch missive, Reuschling claimed only the learned Jew, who was practiced and experienced in the holy art known as Kabbalah, could understand sacred mysteries. As a result of Reuschling's book, Pope Leo X encouraged the publication of the same book that his predecessor, Gregory IX, had ordered burned. Times had indeed changed since Penafort introduced the Jewish convert Donin to Pope Gregory IX, that would have been in the 13th century, the Disputation of Paris, the burnings of the Talmud in Paris at that time. The Dominicans of Cologne remained true to their traditions and gave unwavering support to Pfefferkorn, but the Medici popes no longer held the position of Innocent III and Gregory IX, the popes who burned the Talmud at least the ones they could get their hands on. De Verbo Mirifico, Reuschland's booklet, The Wonder-Working Word, marked Reuschland's immersion into depths of the Kabbalah, but his Hebrew studies were only the means to a greater end. When he published The Art of Kabbalism in 1517, the controversy was winding down and getting subsumed into the tumult of the Reformation, and I would rather say that the controversy was subsumed in Jewish and humanist politicking on behalf of Reuschland. Reuschland ultimately lost his case, but received little penalty, and the Jews got to keep their books in spite of the loss. The Art of Kabbalah is another dialogue between three men, a Jew, Simon, a Muslim, Moranus, and the Pythagorean Philolaeus. The participants meet at the house of the Jew, who compares the discovery of the Kabbalah with the discovery of the magic herb, Mali. Both can accomplish wonders. Both are like a Jacob's ladder 
that unites heaven and earth, or creates a heaven on earth. If you have found it, Simon says, referring to Maui, you seem to be freed from all misery. This magic herb is, next to the Kabbalah, the Jacob's Ladder, the golden chain or cord. This ladder stretches from the super-heavenly world down to earth, and on it man ascends step by step from one level to another, just like the golden chain of Homer. Now, this is Reuschlin, the second greatest scholar in Europe, right? This guy's a clown. I'm sorry, but he is. The idea of the golden chain of Homer is extracted from a poetic allegory found in the opening lines of Book 8 of the Iliad. It cannot honestly be confounded with Jacob's ladder. In Homer's narrative in the Iliad, the chain is only proposed in a challenge issued by Zeus to the other gods that if they hung a golden chain from heaven, and pulled on it, they would not be able to pull Zeus down to earth. That's what the golden chain of Homer is about. Has nothing to do with Jacob's ladder. So Roisin takes Homer's analogy entirely and childishly out of context. Continuing with Jones. The key linking heaven and earth is the Hebrew names of the angels, another crazy idea of Reuschland's with no foundation in scripture. Since the angels move the heavenly bodies, they can be ordered or besieged to create wonders on earth. Magic is the word of God, but not in the sense that the gospel is the word of God. We are talking about something more primitive. The word of God is literally the Hebrew tongue. Reuschling quotes Pico. Each voice which has the power of magic in it has it only insofar as it is formed by the word of God. Only insofar as it has within it the power to exert original natural magical effects which come from the voice of God. Simon the Jew informs his interlocutors those who have mastered the Kabbalah give great honor to the 72 angels' names, and through them bring about wonderful things, more wonderful than I am permitted to describe. The circular movement of the stars and planets is attributable to angels who move them, not to natural causes. Unusual motions in the heavens are attributable to the angels' free will. So, the motives for studying the Kabbalah are selfish and relate to both covetousness and idolatry. However, such studies never benefited the Jews themselves, not in that regard. It is idolatry indeed to believe that by the utterance of a special secret word, God would bend to the will of man. The true Christian should instead endeavor to bend himself to the will of God, which is found in the true word of God and not in any supposed secrets of the Jews. Jones continues with his own assessment of Reuschland's words, and he says that Reuschland is thus trying to use the Kabbalah as a bridge between God and man, and I must note that in Reuschland's view, the Kabbalah replaces 
Yahshua Christ with the corrupt writings of the Jews because Christ is the only mediator between God and man. So Reuschland's not really a Christian at all. In many respects, he fails miserably as a Christian and a scholar. Jones says, once he created this system, a new concept of religion would arise, concentrated on becoming one with God through attainment of divine wisdom, which resembled gnosis, the Greek word for knowledge, after the Gnostics, the knowledge of the Gnostics, the Jewish Gnostics, Gnostics of Alexandria, activated through incantation and ritual with the recovery of the Pythagorean, Pythagorean Kabbalistic tradition, man has spectacular new powers that can work wonders and create a heaven on earth. In Reuschland's system, man is no longer the pathetic suffering creature who finds in a cross the best symbol of his life on earth. He now has the power to order angels through the medium of theurgic or God-working Hebrew spells to work wonders for him. Gnosis and magic give man the coercive power God exerts over nature. In studying the Kabbalah, and especially by learning the names of the angels who run the universe, Reuschland attempts to achieve that Gnostic mastery without falling into the trap of trafficking in fallen spirits. His system was an early conflation of magic and science that was doomed to failure. But it was a failure he could not see because the Hebrew scripture and the Judaizing promises of heaven on earth that went with it blinded him. Where he says Hebrew scripture, Jones really can only mean Hebrew writing, or really the writings of the Jews found in the Kabbalah. He's not talking about the Old Testament by any means. The art of Kabbalah confirmed the suspicions of Pfefferkorn and the Dominicans. Everything the obscure men had been saying about Reuschland's Judaizing was now confirmed in his own words. In 1519, Hoogstraten published Destruction of the Kabbalah, the counterattack that exposed the agenda behind Reuschland's actions. The destruction of the Kabbalah stressed the scholastic method, which, Hoogstraten said, was the principal tool in the search for doctrinal truth, aspects of the faith which were not explicit in scripture or the apostolic tradition, depended on deductive reasoning, that is, on the use of the logical argumentation characteristic of scholastic theology. Hoogstraten effectively rebutted humanists like Perkheimer, who claimed the true theologian must understand Hebrew, because all the mysteries of the Old and New Testament are hidden in it. Rather, we would find Hebrew necessary to understanding the plain word of Scripture, and not necessarily for the discovery of anything unknown outside of the correction or improvement of translation, and thus of understanding in the word of God. Therefore, Reuschland seems to have caught language studies in a dichotomy that caused them discredit and would prohibit their more serious and important use. 
Hoogstraten's own backwards opinion has been miraculously transmigrated to modern adherents of the King James-only school. He was a Latin Vulgate-only theologian, apparently. But when Hoogstraten lived, there was no King James version of the Bible, in spite of the fact that we all know that Moses used it, and, and that's what God gave him at Mount Sinai, right? I'm being funny, but that's the way these fools act. Returning to Jones. In De Verbo Mirifico, the wonder-working word, Reuschland's first attempt to rehabilitate Kabbalistic magic, Reuschland had spoken as Capneon, that was his pen name, the Greek form of his own name. In The Art of Kabbalah, he speaks under a name that Hoogstraten finds especially telling. He calls himself Moranus, a play on the word Morano. And that's incredible, right? Maybe he was. The name of a man who, on the surface, proclaims his allegiance to one set of behavior, ceremony, and teaching, but who inwardly practices something else. Under the name Moranus, Reuschling could praise Jewish perfidy and subvert Christian teaching, something hard to justify if he were a true Christian. By making Moranus his mouthpiece, Hoogstraten argued, Reuschland was admitting publicly, albeit cryptically, his role as a Judaizing subversive. By describing the Kabbalah as the first revelation which Adam received after the fall, Reuschland undermined authentic scripture, and by making knowledge of the Kabbalah the sine qua non of theology, Reuschland undermined both sacred and secular science. And we cannot help but to completely agree with Hoogstraten's assessment in these respects. Hoogstraten wasn't the only one who accused Reuschland of using the Jewish Kabbalah to promote blasphemy and magic. The Jesuit Martin Del Rio leveled precisely those charges following the lead of Pedro Ciruello. Thomas Erastus, I'm sorry, I'm tripping on Pedro's last name. Thomas Erastus condemned the book's advocacy of repugnant magic. Reuschland lent credence to their charges by promoting a talisman, which he described in his book. On one side of the medal, Reuschland prescribed the wonder-working tetragrammaton, I-A-S-U-A, an approximation of the name we know as Yahshua. It would be Yasua, if we understand the five letters to represent Greek forms and not English. But tetra means four and not five, so it's not really a tetragrammaton. It has to be a pentagrammaton. The tetragrammaton is simply yad he vau he, or what we would say was I or Y H V or U H. 
On one side of the medal, this talisman that Reuschlin is promoting, Reuschlin prescribed the wonder-working tetragrammaton, Yasua, along with the seven astrological signs, and on the other side, a star of David, and various Hebrew signs. Reuschlin's recommendation of a standard instrument of Jewish magic was proof of his intention and his inspiration. But by 1519, Germany had other things on its mind. Luther's actions and the rise of the Reformation destroyed whatever unity the humanist anti-Pfefferkorn Dominican forces possessed. Jones puts humanist in quotes, evidently alluding to a belief that they were truly Jewish because they were allied with Jews. Luther was outspoken in his denunciation of Kabbalistic foolishness, even though he was a friend of the av- and avid correspondent with Reuschlin, Erasmus was of the same opinion when it came to Kabbalah. Although Reuschlin thwarted Pfefferkorn's plans to burn the Talmud, Pfefferkorn and the Dominicans thwarted Reuschlin's plan to spread the Kabbalah, at least openly. Reuschlin's cover was blown when he was placed on the commission and had to defend the Jewish books he found repugnant, as well as the repugnant Jews, to prevent destruction of the newly emerging esoteric science that was mankind's new hope. As we have seen, Jacob Hoogstraten wrote Destruction of the Kabbalah in 1519 as a warning to others, once he recognized the true magnitude of what Reuschlin was proposing in his attack on the Kabbalah, Hoogstraten portrayed Reuschlin as a man who had acquired fame but brought forth only abuse and heresy, a man who falsified scripture as well as Aristotle, Jerome, and Dionysius in the service of his occult theories. Reuschlin was no philo-Semite. And Jones here is clinging to his initial charge that Reuschlin was an anti-Semite. But he was a Judaizer. He was interested in Hebrew for the access that it gave him to occult science. Reuschlin restated Pico's thesis in the Augenspiegel. No art gave more certainty about divine things than magic and Kabbalah. Christianity enabled Reuschlin to derive from the Kabbalah a universal esoteric science science which incorporated pagan, Jewish, and Christian elements. But once that esoteric science was derived, it threatened to replace Christianity as the true religion. Reuschlin had proposed just this sort of syncretistic secret wisdom in De Verbo Mirifico the wonder-working word. And Leslie Swift followed in Reuschlin's footsteps. There is no doubt. And I'll be getting to that one day. Within a year of the appearance of Reuschlin's second book on the Kabbalah, Daniel Bomberg brought out the first complete edition of the Babylonian Talmud, meaning the first edition produced on a printing press, evidently in 1520. Gretz describes a French pantomime in which a doctor with the name Capneon, Reuschlin's nickname, 
written on his back, drops a bundle of sticks on the stage and departs. Another figure with the name Erasmus appears, tries in vain to ignite the sticks and then departs. Luther succeeds. This is pantomime is a pun on the stages of the Reformation. Luther succeeds, but after him the Pope arrives and pours oil on a fire, making it bigger than ever. Pfefferkorn and the Talmud, Gretz concludes, should not have been missing in this dumb show, for they were the fuse that started the conflagration that came to be known as the Reformation. And we have already belabored the fact that Gretz is clearly biased, and we disagree with that assessment. Jones says that Catholic writers like John Eck concurred holding Reuschlin indirectly responsible for the letters of obscure men as well as for Luther, thus establishing a connection between Reuschlin and the beginning of the Reformation. They also claim that without the Jews, Martin Luther never would have come to the fore. The idea of Luther as the father of the Jews made its debut long before John Eck coined the term Judenvater Luther meaning Luther, father of the Jews. And we're going to see that Jones is not being honest here. Reuschlin only gave the humanists a vehicle for a long-held desire, the end of Roman church control of scholarship, and, as Erasmus had termed it, obscurantism, the systematic repression of certain literature. Johann Eck was for a long time Luther's adversary in causes absolutely unrelated to the Jews or to Johann Reuschlin, such as the indulgences dispute. That had nothing to do with the Jews or Reuschlin, except maybe that the Jews were making money on usury in the sale of indulgences, loaning money to peasants and nobles. That's perhaps true. Here, Jones's citation for X having called Luther the Judenvaten Luther, or Luther, father of the Jews, is defective. He, in his index, mistakenly attributes John Chrysostom, which is impossible and must be a clerical error. Jones is evidently following Hans Martin Kim, who he cites elsewhere in the chapter. However, we have found the label Judenvater in another source. The Impact of the Reformation, Essays by Heiko Augustinus Obermann, a Dutch Calvinist theologian who studied at Harvard and died recently in 2001. On page 101 of Obermann's book, we read the following. With the same repetitiousness with which Reuschlin had discredited Pfefferkorn as the baptized Jew in the Augenspiegel, Eck calls Osiander Judenschutzer or Judenvater, father of the Jews, who has the gall to denounce the authorities for their financial greed instead of denouncing the Jews for their guilt. 
Osiander must have received a good bit of the Jewish golden calf to line his pockets. After all, the Talmud explicitly commands the Jews to kill Christian children. When that man argues that no baptized Jew has ever reported such a thing, Eck replies that the appeal to Pfefferkorn does not prove a thing, since Pfefferkorn can only speak for himself. It is equally inadmissible to introduce Reuchlin's authority. The Augenspiegel makes perfectly clear that Der Ehrlich Doctor differed from Pfefferkorn only in a matter of words. Reuchlin never denied that there are Talmudic prayers directed against the Christians. Eck himself knows about a ritual murder case in Freiburg during 1503, and furthermore, about many well-attested published cases. Why have the Jews been thrown out of so many countries and cities? Eck goes on to relate the European history of banning Jews over 50 years from the Spanish expulsion until his own day, which serves as proof of a common Christian stance and a common Christian sense. And that's the best thing we've heard of Johann Eck, was that he really did despise Jews for all the right reasons. But here we see, in Obermann's citation from Eck, that Eck applied the term Judenvater to one who has the gall to denounce the authorities, meaning the Catholic Church authorities, for their financial greed, instead of denouncing the Jews for their guilt. That's important to note, because it makes Jones wrong on Eck coining the term Judenvater Luther because Eck didn't apply the word exclusively to Luther. He gave the <laughs> he gave a very precise description of those who deserve the label. In 1541, Johann Eck published his Against the Defense of the Jews, in opposition to Andreas Osiander, not to Luther. Osiander was a German Lutheran theologian in the time of Luther, but he was not Luther. So Jones is being just a little bit dishonest here, because Eck evidently did not apply the term Judenvater to Luther in his Against the Defense of the Jews, or to Luther exclusively, but rather to who, whoever criticized the church authorities for financial greed, instead of denouncing the Jews for their guilt in unrelated activities. Eck made a straw man argument, and Jones exacerbates the evasive dishonesty. We sympathize with Eck for his feelings towards the Jews, but that does not relieve him of his failure to adequately address the grievances of the German people against the excesses of the Roman Catholic Church. If you get caught doing something, you, you don't. You get caught stealing, you, you don't say go bust a Jew for stealing. You still stole. You're still guilty. Your accusations against the Jews doesn't absolve you of your crime. There is no doubt that Johann Eck was a biased Roman Catholic, as is E. Michael Jones. We wonder if Jones would label Eck a racist for his feelings about the Jews, as Eck was a faithful Roman Catholic who despised and actively opposed the Reformers. In that citation... 
from Oberman, Eck is clearly a racist. But there is also no doubt that the reformers had many valid complaints against an unbudging Catholic Church, which was oppressing the German people while Catholic officials lived lavish lifestyles at their expense. On the other hand, there is no doubt, as can be told from his own writings, that Luther was friendly to the Jews early in his career and until rather late in his career. We must also suspect Philip Melanchthon, who rapidly rose to the top of the Lutheran Church as he was the nephew and protege of Johann Reuschlin. But it is also evident from Luther's writing that his friendly demeanor towards the Jews was maintained because he himself was under the mistaken impression that he could convert the Jews to his church once the Reformation succeeded. Only in his disappointment did he realize their treacherous nature and turn on them in his writing. And even then, Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies only followed X against the defense of the Jews by two years. Jones seems to miss the point that the reformers had legitimate grievances against the Roman Church, which would not be resolved otherwise. He also misses the fact that Hutton and many of the other humanists were certainly not Jews, neither were men such as Hutton, Mutian, or Rubianus dependent on Jewish money. Hutton financed his activities through his employment at the court of the Archbishop of Mainz. Mutian was a Catholic prebendary, and Rubianus was the rector at Erfurt University. All three men had their own motives, and once Reuschlin was expended, Luther was their chosen vehicle. It was probably the same motives which brought Jewry to support Luther as well, since the prospective benefits were certainly mutual. Jones misses a lot because of his Catholic bias. Continuing with Jones, who does pretty well otherwise. After 1519, most Reuschlinists became Lutherans, and we would say that, in truth, men with their own agendas gave their own agendas gave up Reuschlin for Luther. There's a difference. They didn't switch parties. Ulrich von Hutten, Conrad Mutianus, Crotus Rubianus, these men were only out for themselves. They didn't switch they, they didn't switch parties. They just switched horses. Erasmus, though, wrote to Reuschlin saying he regretted the Lutheran tragedy and had always tried to separate Reuschlin's cause from Luther's, an admission that shows just how closely they were related in everyone's mind, and we would consider that unjust, and a matter of confusion caused by the humanists, but that confusion was not purposeful on the part of Luther or Reuschlin. Unlike Erasmus, who would become his opponent in a dispute over free will. Luther tried to link Reuschlin's cause to his own, and here we would appreciate a citation, but there is none, because so far in the histories of Johann Janssen and the other material that we've seen from Luther, 
he did not really try to link Reuschlin's cause to his own. Luther had plenty of his own grievances against the Roman Catholic Church. And the indulgence dispute was only the, the first among a whole list of grievances. Luther's supporters did likewise, and that we would agree with. Ulrich von Hutten wrote to Erasmus, pleading with him not to attack Luther in public, because Erasmus disagreed on Luther's theology, thereby jeopardizing the cause of anti-scholasticism. Luther wasn't an anti-scholar. Luther was an anti-pope. There's a huge difference. Hutton never talked to Luther personally until the end of 1520, and his agenda was also distinct from Luther's, as Johann Janssen demonstrated from Hutton's own writings. Hutton only came to Luther's cause because of its better chances for success, not because he really believed Luther's theology. Hutton had his own theology. The reformers should keep a united front in public, no matter, these are Hutton's words to Erasmus, no matter what they thought privately. Hutton also wrote to Reuschlin, reminding him, even if your stated disapproval of Luther could rescue you from them, you cannot regard it as honest to oppose his party. When you see that men who belong to it whom you must always support in a respectable cause, unless you want to be the most ungrateful man of all. And of course, Reuschlin did not support Luther in the Reformation. He, he remained a Catholic and quite anti-Luther. Maximilian I, who gave Pfefferkorn the mandate to seize Jewish books, died in 1519. In May 1520, the papal court rendered the final verdict in the Reuschlin case. The acquittal was overturned, and Reuschlin was obliged to pay court costs. And we had previously mentioned Reuschlin's ultimately, ultimate defeat, but minor penalty. In June 1520, Leo X signed the bull Exerge Domine, meaning Arise, Lord, threatening Luther with excommunication. Primarily, that was over the indulgences dispute. It had nothing to do with Reuschlin. Reuschlin's scholarly reputation remained unimpaired, however. He accepted a position at the University of Tübingen, where Jones says, however, it's like Jones is linking Reuschlin to Luther, and Reuschlin's case and Luther's case were two entirely different issues. So Jones is being dishonest in a lot of ways. He wants real hard to link Reuschlin to Luther, simply because the humanists that supported Reuschlin turned to support Luther. He doesn't understand how presidential politics really works. It's not the president that people see that are the real powers in office. It's the men behind the scenes. And those men behind the scenes can drop one candidate for another overnight. They dropped Reuschlin, they adopted Luther. But that doesn't link Luther's cause to Reuschlin's cause. That's childish that, that's a childish attempt on Jones's part, I sincerely believe. 
Reuschland's scholarly reputation remained unimpaired, however. He accepted a position at the University of Tübingen, where he taught Greek and Hebrew until his death in 1522. It is unknown whether Reuschland paid the fine before he died. Maximilian's successor was Charles V, during whose reign the flame that Reuschland kindled and Luther fanned grew into a raging inferno in which the Talmud and the Reformation were merged into each other. And that's kind of indirectly partially true. In his booklet on the Jews and their lies, not written until 1543, the Talmud becomes Luther's primary target. But there is no doubt that Luther was for a long time friendly to the Jews. However, the cause of the Talmud for most of the humanists was not necessarily to support Jews, but to end the Catholic suppression of any literature, as we have seen Erasmus express a desire for the end of obscurantism from the beginning of the Reuschland controversy, which even Jones in this chapter has recorded. Pfefferkorn passed from the scene in 1521, one year before Reuschland. In his unofficial last will and testament, he held Reuschland responsible for the revolutionary disorder sweeping Germany. Like the Jews, Reuschland was a threat to the inner peace of the Germanies. The disorders which followed his Judaizing could be construed as divine punishment because you have stolen God's honor and his good name to cover up what you were doing with the Jews and the devil. Because of that, you are not worthy to eat bread with dogs, much less consider yourself a member of the body of Christ. Instead, you should take up your abode under the naked sky, drawn and quartered on four stakes hammered into the ground. That would be your just desserts. And Jones says, yet, even though another revolutionary movement took its place on the main stage of history, the occult tradition continued on the foundation Pico and Reuschland had established. Cornelius Agrippa of Nettesheim, and when we, I didn't write this into the notes for this program, but when we had uh, discussed Martin Luther in Life and Death, in, in the early segments of that series, when we had discussed the German humanists, we had um, learned that a lot of the German humanists had changed their names to Latin names or Greek names because they came to despise their own German heritage. To me, it would be really difficult to do that. I, I don't, I, I can't put myself back in the context of medieval Germany but to denounce my heritage for that of a of another nation and of a nation that Germans had had conquered ultimately and and had transcended I, I don't know if I could do that I don't know what sort of people are so ready and eager to give up their own heritage for that of another people except for Jews they do it all the time and it's kind of weird to me that so many 
Germans, quote-unquote, I say that with my tongue in my cheek, would readily give up their own names and heritages for these Roman and Greek names. But Cornelius Agrippa of Nettesheim is evidently one of these supposed Germans using, in this instance, Latin names. Cornelius Agrippa of Nettesheim published his Ruminations on Magic in 1533 as De Occulta Philosophia, inspired by Reuschland's De Verbo Mirifico, the occult philosophy inspired by the wonder-working word. Agrippa abandoned Reuschland's professions of orthodoxy Returning instead to the medieval tradition of magic, Reuschland abhorred and repudiated. When Agrippa's book appeared, Reuschland had been dead for 11 years. Gradually, people like Erasmus pulled back from their erstwhile allies in the fight against the obscure men, meaning the Dominican monks, largely because they feared that magic, the occult, and its rituals threatened to Judaize Christianity. Ultimately, Reuschland was no humanist, but by the time Erasmus recognized that fact, it was too late to stop what Erasmus had unwittingly promoted, and Erasmus promoted it to advance his own agenda. He didn't really care about the Talmud or the Kabbalah. He wanted to end obscurantism and church control over literature. John Dee Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren's astrologer, helped spread the Kabbalah and its occult practices to England. But it was only in the 17th century that Kabbalah studies were pursued with zeal. In England, the enthusiasm for Kabbalah reemerged on the other side of the Reformation as Freemasonry. Albert Pike traces Freemasonry to 1717. William Thomas Walsh claims it existed at the time of Elizabeth, who stumbled upon the first lodges and made a deal with the Masons. If they would initiate her into their secrets, she would allow their secret society to continue. By tracing, and that account might be apocryphal, I don't know. By tracing Freemasonry to the Cecils and Elizabeth, Walsh links it with the Judaizing anti-Catholic conspiracy that swept Germany in the wake of the Reuschland Pfefferkorn controversy. And here we must agree with Jones. And this links the mentality between Reuschland's interest in the Kabbalah and the spurious claims of Pico, Pico de Mirandola, and the secret societies of the 19th century out of which emerged the protocols of the learned elders of Zion. The Jews took full advantage of the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church, the dissent against the Church, and the end of obscurantism to poison all of the intellectual wells of Europe and usher themselves in as their own Messiah. But there were many other factors involved. And the Reformation itself cannot be blamed for the resulting evil. 
The fact that the Lutheran Church maintained Christian tradition rather than embracing any Jewish ones discredits the notion that Lutheranism by itself was a Judaizing force. However, Jones's bias is that of the ever-faithful papist. There aren't two parties here. Jones wants to reduce this whole argument to two parties, the Pope and the Jews, the Catholics and the Jews. That's not true. It's a lot more complicated than that. Jones concludes, and his conclusion is excellent, Kabbalah and Freemasonry tend toward spiritual perfection and the fusion of the creeds and nationalities of mankind. Freemasonry was linked with the Kabbalah, and Reuschlin had a place of honor in its annals. In his exoteric history of Freemasonry, Morals and Dogma, Albert Pike claims, All truly dogmatic religions have issued from the Kabbalah and returned to it. Everything scientific and grand in the religious dreams of all the Illuminati, Jacob Baum, Swedenborg, St. Martin, and others is borrowed from the Kabbalah. All the Masonic associations owe to it their secrets and their symbols. Pike echoes Reuschlin on the magical words of the Hebrew languages. Once the adept, presumably the higher degree Mason, penetrates into the sanctuary of the Kabbalah, he discovers the necessary union of ideas and signs, the consecration of the most fundamental realities by the primitive characters, the trinity of words, letters, and numbers, a philosophy simple as the alphabet, profound and infinite as the word, theorems more complete and luminous than those of Pythagoras, a theology summed up by counting on one's fingers, an infinite which can be held in the hollow of an infant's hand. Ten ciphers and twenty-two letters, a triangle, a square and a circle, these are all the elements of the Kabbalah. These are the elementary principles of the written word, reflection of that spoken word that created the world. And for his information on Albert Pike, Jones cited Francis Bacon, The Advancement of Learning, and New Atlantis, published by Oxford's Clarendon Press in 1974. The idea that there are mystical secrets in the language of Scripture at the expense of the plain word of Scripture is probably a lot older than the Kabbalah and continue continually manifests itself in society. For example, in the much more recent so-called Bible Code, true Christians should cast these ideas aside because that even if there is something to them, they cannot negate or permute the plain word of Yahweh our God, his gospel, and his law. Here in this chapter, we have witnessed the systematic Jewish bribery of German nobles in order to persuade their opinions in cases. We have also seen the manner in which the Jews readily cooperate with one another and organize themselves in support of their causes.
We have witnessed the absolute naivety of Johann Reuschlin, supposedly the second most notable scholar in Europe, to believe the claims of the Jews regarding the Old Testament and the Kabbalah, and for readily handing over the responsibility as librarians and interpreters of our sacred texts to the Jews, where he had the bold audacity to claim that the Jews are our archivists, librarians, and antiquarians who preserve books that can serve as witnesses to our faith. That's all a bunch of bunk. We must, of course, ask whether Reuschland was bribed. Jones sought to make the accusation but could not prove it, and repeated Reuschland's own denials as well as those of his supporters. However, Jones, like Perkheimer, However, Jones did show that Reuschland expected cooperation and even quid pro quo favors from certain Jews for the task which he had taken on their behalf, and namely from the Pope's Jewish physician. We have also witnessed the rather crude simplicity of Jewish theological arguments and the rather crude manner in which Jewish aspirations, especially Jewish messianic aspirations, were expressed by Jews themselves. The blunt language was very much similar to the same arguments as they were produced in the protocols of the learned elders of Zion three centuries later. There are frequent attempts to deny the authenticity of the protocols based on their crude language, but we have seen much the same language used by Jews to profess their aspirations here in the 15th and 16th centuries. Most importantly, we witnessed to some degree the eagerness of the German humanists, most of whom were pagans, to support the cause of Reuschland on behalf of the Jews, and to ally themselves with Jews to the detriment of all Christendom. However, it is true that for different reasons the reformers were also friendly to the Jews and their cause. The consequence of this, as we believe that we have seen E. Michael Jones correctly conclude, was that the Kabbalah would survive and the interest it generated among German Christians would give rise to masonry and the secret societies through which later revolutions, which were largely Jewish in nature, would be launched. From these societies, as we have already demonstrated from the works of Nesta Webster, came the fundamental ideas found in the protocols of the learned elders of Zion. When we do return to our series on Martin Luther and Life and Death, where we are approaching the time of the Peasants' War, we will observe Jones's remark on the events covered by our primary source for those presentations, which is Johann Janssen. First, we hope to present the balance of a presentation on the Protocols of Zion. Now that we have now that we have the glue to stick the protocols onto the Kabbalah and the medieval Jews, where it belongs. But first, we hope to make a brief discussion of Manasseh ben Israel, another Messianic Jew who had the Puritan Oliver Cromwell under his spell. We hope to do that in just an evening. I can't guarantee that now. I, I haven't even read his book yet. But either next week or the following, 
we will undertake that endeavor and then move on to the protocols of Satan. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. And good night. Thank <laughs> you.